0: Welcome back to Certain Comfort in Uncertain Times, a look at the book of Revelation that we're recording in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis in 2020. And all along as we've gone through the book of Revelation, we've made the point of trying not to miss the forest for the trees, uh, trying not to get caught in in all the symbolism and all the details, chasing rabbit trails, trying to figure out the one-to-one equivalencies, uh, trying to figure out what in our Uh, present-day news headlines might be found in the book of Revelation and coming up with timelines and charts and dates and uh, guesses on who uh, certain persons are supposed to represent and certain symbols are supposed to represent. And instead, we've been trying to uh, figure out what the certain comfort is in uncertain times that the book of Revelation is intending to give us. Uh, Because that's what the book was written for. It was written to comfort believers in the early church and in churches throughout history that no matter what they are going through that Jesus Christ is still in control and he is coming back to make all things right and there is perhaps no chapter in Revelation certainly no chapter up to this point in Revelation uh, that uh, where we see this temptation to come up uh, with all kinds of crazy interpretations than chapter 9 Uh, And so I've entitled this message, Locusts and Horses and Demons, Oh My. uh, Because that is, uh, this is one of those chapters where we see these these locusts and we see the horses in the second half of the chapter. and We see mentions of demons and we're so tempted to try and figure out what the exact symbols are going to represent uh, in the end times that we kind of miss the forest for the trees and we miss what the chapter's trying to communicate because we're trying to figure out if the locusts are Apache helicopters or if it's a, a mass demon possession or uh, whatever else, uh, what other interpretations we may come up with. And so instead, we are going to look at the entirety of Revelation chapter 9 uh, through the view of what it is. This is God's judgment coming on the earth. Uh, as we saw in the sealed judgments, the first four sealed judgments. Um, were these common things that everyone throughout history between the cross and the return of Christ experience. Uh, And then the final three sealed judgments were this acceleration towards the end uh, where all things were brought to an end and all things were made new. And so we see that with the trumpet judgments as well. The first four trumpet judgments are things that all people experience uh, throughout the church age between the cross and the return. And we get to these final seal judgments, or these final trumpet judgments, and we start to see things that not everybody experiences as things start to accelerate towards the end of history. And so we are going to read the entirety of Revelation chapter 9, and so I encourage you to follow along as I read. And then we are just going to quickly look at five things that Revelation chapter 9 tells us about God's judgment in these last days that we are living in. The fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. The key for the shaft to the abyss was given to him. He opened the shaft to the abyss, and smoke came up out of the shaft, like smoke from a great furnace, so that the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke from the shaft. Then locusts came out of the smoke onto the earth, And power was given to them like the power that scorpions have on the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have God's seal on their foreheads. They were not permitted to kill them, but were to torment them for five months. Their torment is like the torment caused by a scorpion when it stings someone. In those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. The appearance of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. Something like golden crowns was on their heads. Their faces were like human faces. They had hair like women's hair. Their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had chests like iron breastplates. The sound of their wings was like the sound of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. And they had tails with stingers like scorpions so that with their tails they had the power to harm people for five months. They had as their king the angel of the abyss. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he has the name Apollyon. The first woe has passed. There are still two more woes to come after this. The sixth angel blew his trumpet from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God I heard a voice say to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who were prepared for the hour, day, month and year were released to kill a third of the human race. The number of mounted troops was 200 million. I heard their number. This is how I saw the horses and their riders in the vision. They had breastplates that were fiery red hyacinth blue and sulfur yellow the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions and from their mouths came fire smoke and sulfur a third of the human race was killed by these three plagues by the fire the smoke and the sulfur that came from their mouths for the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails because their tails which resemble snakes have heads that inflict injury The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immoralities, or their thefts. If you remember from last time, one of the things I said was that the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments are telling the same events from two different perspectives and the seal judgments told the end of all things from uh, a retelling of the creation story almost the creation story being told in reverse a decreation uh, of the created order and the trumpet judgments tell the story of the end times the church age the the, the time in between the first coming of christ and the second coming of christ through the story of the Exodus. And so as we read through these trumpet judgments, there's supposed to be this familiarity with the judgments that are being brought upon the earth. They are very reminiscent of the plagues that were brought upon Egypt. Uh, and the the story as a whole has echoes to the Exodus story and to the conquest story as we saw last week. And we see that uh, here in what chapter nine is trying to tell us as we read chapter nine and we're tempted to be pulled into the symbolism to try and figure out what these demons are and to equate them with with weaponry and and things that we see in our own day or we we see the horses and we try and and figure out what things going on in the world this might entail Uh, we're not really supposed to interpret chapter nine by looking forward to future events or looking around at present events, but as we've said throughout this book, we're really supposed to interpret it by looking back at past events. That we're supposed to to hear these echoes of the Exodus story and realize that what God is doing here in chapter nine is what He did with the plagues in Egypt. He is bringing judgment upon those who have enslaved and mistreated His people. He is uh, bringing about the end of a world system that is antagonistic to his rule and antagonistic to his plans and antagonistic to his people and that ultimately is what is going on in chapter nine he is bringing judgment upon these world systems these nations that stand against him and so as i said we'll we'll quickly look at five aspects of this judgment five things that chapter nine tells us about god's judgment and the first is that God is sovereign in his judgment? God is sovereign in his judgment. The chapter opens with the fifth uh, trumpet being blown, and John sees a star that had fallen from heaven to earth. And as we said last week, a star falling is, uh, stars in general, are often symbolic of angels in the Old Testament. And here, it is as well a star falls from heaven to earth an angel comes from heaven to earth and to him is given a key to the shaft of the abyss which he then opens and unleashes this plague of darkness and locusts on the earth and while we don't want to dive too deep into what these symbols are there, there are generally two interpretations of this angel uh... some see this as uh, a fallen angel Uh, An angel who is siding with Satan, and so he falls to the earth. uh, Much like we hear of Lucifer falling to the earth in the Old Testament, being cast out of heaven. Uh, But I'm not sure that's the best interpretation. I tend to believe that this is uh, not a fallen angel, but this is a good angel loyal to God who is not falling per se, but is being sent from heaven to earth. Uh, and the main reason i I think that is because he's given uh, the key to the shaft of the abyss uh... if you remember back at the beginning of the book one of the ways jesus announces himself introduces himself to john and to the readers of this book is that he is the one who has the keys of death and of hades uh... and so i think it's problematic to see jesus as turning over those keys to a fallen angel and so i think This is much more likely uh, John telling us that God is ultimately the one behind this abyss being open. This is only occurring because God is allowing it to occur. He is the one who sends the angel, gives him the authority to open the abyss and unleash this judgment on the earth. And we continue to see then throughout the chapter this idea that even as uh, this judgment is coming and it seems to be very chaotic on the earth with the locusts inflicting torment and the, the horses killing a third of the world's population. What we see instead is, is God is actually in control of all of this. He is allowing it to happen. He is the one who gives the authority for the abyss to be opened. And we see it even in the fact that he is the one who dictates how long these judgments last. He is the one who dictates when they end. Even that reference to a a third of the human race being killed by the horses, uh, being killed by this warfare. We saw last week the reference to Ezekiel 5, where a third of the, the earth was killed by the famine. And so this is God setting out what judgments were going to happen, what judgments would befall what people, when they would start, when they would end, who they would affect. And that's another way we see God's sovereignty in the midst of His judgment. Uh, The locusts are sent out and they can't harm any of the grass of the earth or the green plant or any tree, which of course is what traditional uh, locusts, the actual insects do. They affect all of those things. But instead, they would affect all those people who were not sealed back in Revelation chapter 7. And so these are not judgments experienced by everybody, but these are judgments experienced by those who are not sealed. These are judgments experienced by unbelievers. And so this is very much uh, another sign that the trumpet judgments are telling the same story as the sealed judgments. Uh, they're not occurring after the seal judgments they're occurring at the same time as the seal judgments and if you think back to Revelation chapter 6 when the fifth seal was broken it's the the martyrs crying out how long O Lord until you avenge our blood how long until you set all things right and that's the fifth seal and here with the fifth trumpet again telling the same story from a different perspective what you have is vengeance being taken on the world for the blood of the martyrs. The sealed are protected from the locusts, but the locusts come and they torment, uh, most likely a spiritual torment, perhaps even a psychological or emotional torment. These people who were not sealed in chapter seven, the unbelievers, the world, as I said, aligned against God And his people antagonistic to God and his people and so God is bringing about in these judgments his purposes he's answering the prayers of his saints he is bringing to fulfillment the things that must occur to put all things right and so the sealed are protected from the locusts but those who are not sealed are not protected they are tormented by these locusts and Uh, The third of the human race is killed by the horses, the exact number that God dictates. And so God is sovereign in his judgment. These are things that are happening, perhaps accelerating as time goes on, but happening throughout the church age, but not uh, happening to all people. Uh, This instead is a targeted judgment against those who are not Uh, Aligned with God and his people who have not been sealed, who are not part of the church. Not just have their membership roles in a church, but those who are in Christ. And so they experience this torment. They beg to die and they are not allowed to die. So God even uh, determines the point in time of their death in his sovereignty. And the, the judgments last until God says... That they are not and so God is sovereign in his judgment even in the midst of this chaotic scene he is the one in control behind the scenes orchestrating it all but then secondly God is merciful in his judgment God is merciful in his judgment not only is God sovereign in his judgment not only is he the one that's in control determining when the judgments start when they end Uh, who they affect but he is merciful in his judgment he's merciful in the fact that these temporal judgments are just that, they're temporal Uh, they don't affect all people throughout all time they don't affect uh, anyone eternally Um, the locust judgments it says are the locusts are given five months to harm people and that five months is not a literal time frame uh, that's going to last for a span of five months but rather uh, the lifespan of a locust is five months. And so for five months, uh, the locust would come and they would destroy uh, all the vegetation, but at the end of the five months, the locust would die out and the plague would be over. And the point is, is that there is an appointed time for these judgments uh, that God is sending on these people, that it starts, but that it ends after a given time. It ends when the span of the judgment has concluded it is not prolonged it is not eternal there is an eternal judgment that's coming by the end of the book but these temporal judgments are not that and so even for people uh, who are being judged for their treatment of the saints even those who are being judged uh, for tormenting the people of god uh, even their judgment does not last forever and again what we are supposed to see in these judgments is not uh, looking forward to future events or around at current events, but back at past events. And we're supposed to see the exodus. Uh, We're supposed to see the judgments that God sent on Egypt, which were limited in their scope. Uh, All of the plagues of Egypt ended after a given time. Uh, God's judgment on Egypt did not last forever, uh, but it lasted for the time needed to free his people, and to render judgment on the peoples that had enslaved his people, that had mistreated his people, uh, just like we see later on in the Old Testament, in the exile, Babylon is sent to judge the people of God, but then Persia is sent to judge Babylon, and the Greeks are sent to judge Persia, and the Romans are sent to judge the Greeks. Uh, the, the The judgments are all limited and accomplish the purpose for which God sent them forth. And so even in that, God is merciful. Uh, Even in that, uh, we see that his judgment is not in the terms of these temporal judgments forever, but that he relents when his purposes have been accomplished. And we see that especially in the fact that these judgments do not touch uh, those whom he has sealed uh, this is God's mercy on his people. This torment of the locusts affects only those who have not been sealed. The horses affect only one-third of the population. God's people are preserved from these judgments. And again, these judgments are sent in response to the cries of God's people. The fifth seal the, God's people cry out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge us? And the fifth trumpet, God avenges his people. And so, God is not only sovereign in his judgment, he is merciful in his judgment. But thirdly, God is righteous in his judgment. God is righteous in his judgment. And by that, I mean that God is not judging the innocent. He is not uh, afflicting those who should not be afflicted. The key, verse, or key verses in Revelation chapter 9 are verses 20 and 21, where it says, The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. These judgments are sent uh, as a call to people to repent, and yet the people do not repent. And again, those e- echoes of Exodus are here, where all of these plagues of Egypt occur, and yet Pharaoh hardened his heart against the Lord. Every plague that comes, Pharaoh does not repent, but instead hardens his heart. And that's what we should see here in Revelation Chapter 9 That God sends these judgments, and yet even these judgments uh, do not cause the people who are aligned against God to question their idolatry, to question their sin. They do not repent from their idolatry. They do not repent uh, from their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. Instead, when faced with this judgment, they become further entrenched in their idolatry, further entrenched in their murders and in all of their sinful practices. And so we are reminded of those judgments of Egypt where Pharaoh does not repent, but just brings more and more judgment upon his head. And so we see that God is righteous in his judgments here in Revelation as well. When we do get to that point where eternal judgment is given we already have this build-up that reminds us that uh, there is no one who is caught unaware but rather we all living through this time have repeated reminders repeated calls to repent and this is the difference between those who are sealed and those who are not Uh, those who are not sealed do not repent they experience these things in the end times they do not repent they become further entrenched in their idolatry and their sin with the implication being that those who are sealed do repent Uh, and that that even is what you see in in these verses that talk about them not repenting from worshiping demons and idols of gold silver bronze stone and wood which cannot see hear or walk that idea that idols are made of these uh, earthly materials and they cannot see, hear, or walk. Uh, this is common idolatry language in the Old Testament, uh, starting with the golden calf. And it's at the, the uh, worship of the golden calf that God first starts to tell is- Israel that they uh, are stiff-necked people who have eyes that do not see and ears that do not hear. And throughout the prophetic books, especially in Isaiah, and Jeremiah, uh, we see uh, God calling his people to stop worshiping gods made of gold, silver, bronze, and wood and instead to repent of their idolatry and come back to worship him. And so what we see here is that this, these judgments are supposed to do those same things. And what really marks out who's sealed and who isn't is that idea of repentance. Uh, Those who are not sealed, those who ultimately will pass into eternal judgment, it's not because they had no opportunity to repent. It's because they refused to repent. And so God is not only sovereign and merciful in his judgment, he is righteous in his judgment. Uh, The idea very much is, as C.S. Lewis says, in the great divorce that the gates of hell are locked from the inside people willfully choosing not to repent uh, when confronted with their sin and their idolatry but instead to become entrenched in it but then chapter 9 tells us not only uh, about God and his judgment but I think we should see two things about the world and the church about unbelievers and believers here as well and The first, that the world is deserving of God's judgment. The world is deserving of God's judgment. What I think we're supposed to see here in Revelation chapter 9, as we um, read the locusts have faces like humans, and they have uh, things that are like crowns and iron breastplates, and they sound like chariots and horses, and then you get to the, the horses and the sixth trumpet, and it's... Uh, very much the same thing, talking about armed forces and, uh, and, and military weaponry. Um, again, ironically, the fifth trumpet is the one that gets associated with Apache helicopters, but the sixth trumpet is actually about warfare. Um, but what we're really supposed to see, I think, is that the judgments are being carried out by the very things that people trust in and worship they are being afflicted by the very things that they are worshiping instead of god i think you see a sign of that where it says in verse 20 that they did not stop worshiping demons and idols uh, again in first corinthians chapter 10 paul uh, tells us that behind the idols are demons um, so it wasn't necessarily surprising that uh, these uh, idol worshipers could produce some of the same spiritual experiences Uh, of genuine faith because uh, it's not that the idols were totally powerless but rather that there were demons behind the idols Uh, and so uh, when you see then that those uh, demonic locusts come up in uh, the fifth seal and then you see in the sixth seal people refuse to stop worshiping their demons and their idols I think what we're supposed to see is that uh, these are the very things that rule over the people, the very things that people put their trust in, the very things that people align with in order to get their own needs met. And these are the very things that God is using uh, to harm uh, or to carry out His judgment on these people. Uh, There was even a, uh, a common interpretation of of Revelation 9 that one of the first century uh, part of the first century context for Revelation 9 was this uh, belief that Nero Emperor Nero would eventually uh, rebel against Rome and side with Rome's enemies and then come back and defeat Rome with the Parthenian army. And so there's this idea that the very things that people are trusting in is what will come as judgment upon them. But Then notice that these uh, people that are being afflicted do not only not, they not only don't repent of their idolatry, uh, but they also don't repent of their sinful practices. They don't, they not only don't repent of their lack of love for God, they also don't repent of their lack of love for their neighbor. And so they don't repent of their murders, their sorcery, sexual immorality, or theft. They don't repent of injustice. They don't repent of mistreating. The image of God in their neighbor they don't repent of any of their sin whether it's directed idolatrously towards God or whether it's directed hatefully towards their neighbor and this again is a reminder uh, that God does care about what's happening within history we have this tendency at least in our 21st century American evangelical circles to kind of uh, put god making all things right exclusively when christ returns and of course that is when he will put fully and finally all things right but we kind of lull ourselves into think to thinking that that's the only time where god starts to put things right and yet as we've seen as we go back to the old testament to look at god's judgment God's judgment on Egypt was not just because they were worshiping false gods, but because of how they were treating Israel. God's judgment on Babylon is not uh, just because they're worshiping false gods, but because of how they treated God's people. God's judgment on on Persia is not just because of worshiping false gods, but because of how they treated the peoples that they conquered. And we see that. uh, Craig Keener reminds us Uh, or says that this chapter in Revelation reminds us that God does not merely wait until Christ's return to act in history on behalf of justice. That it matters to God when we enslave people, when we mistreat people, uh, when we uh, have systems in place that raise up one people at the expense of another. Uh, God cares about injustice. And yes, there is a, an aspect in which full justice will only come when Christ returns. But there is also an aspect that God is going to judge injustice even now in time before he judges it fully and finally at the end of time. And so we see that the world is deserving of God's judgment. God uh, is not just up in heaven passively watching all things take place and just waiting uh, to, to come and judge all things and make all things right at the end of history. But there are, are times where he intervenes even using uh, the course of history, using the nations, using people groups to judge the injustice of others. And so the world is deserving of God's judgment. And finally... The church is passive in God's judgment. The church is passive in God's judgment. And when I say the church is passive in God's judgment, I don't mean that the church does nothing, uh, that we kind of just sit on the sidelines and, and hunker down, maybe like the Amish, and just watch the world around us um, fall to pieces. Um, but what I, I really mean is that the church is passive in God's judgment in terms of the church is not the one carrying out God's judgment. Uh, The church is not the one carrying out God's judgment. God is judging the unbelieving people and unbelieving nations in chapter 9. And notice it is not God's people doing it. And again, the the fifth trumpet is the equivalent of the fifth seal. And in the fifth seal, God's people, the martyrs who have been mistreated and enslaved and killed uh, by the nations, they cry out, how long, O Lord, until you avenge Our blood. And notice precisely that it is God orchestrating the vengeance for their blood, and it is God using uh, precisely not the church to carry out. Uh, God does not give the church the go ahead to go and get their own vengeance for their blood. Uh, He does not use the church to carry out his judgment. The church, as we've seen repeatedly throughout. Revelation, especially most recently in Revelation chapter 7. The church is called to the cross. The church is called to precisely that life and that death that Christ lived and that Christ died. And so we are not called to avenge uh, that what we see as injustices uh, by using the world's means. And Craig Keener points that out as well in commenting on Revelation 9, uh, he, he points out the fact that we often use Revelation 9 as a warning to unbelievers, trying to call them to repentance, the very thing that Revelation 9 tells us that they do not do. And yet, uh, he, he says that no, if an unbeliever sits down, who is uh, an unbeliever who is not one of the sealed, so not only an unbeliever, but an unbeliever who is not going to come to believe, uh, they are not... If they sit down and read Revelation, they are not making it to Revelation 9. They are not hearing this message. And so he says that the primary audience for Revelation 9 uh, is believers. It is the church. And so Revelation 9 is not written for your unbelieving neighbor during COVID-19. It's written for you during COVID-19, for me, for our churches. And so he says the message that the church should get from this, that Christians should get from this is that Christians flirting with compromise with the world should think twice because the entire social order will be destroyed in the awful catastrophes of war. Christ alone is an adequate security. And I think that is what we're supposed to get from Revelation chapter 9. It's not supposed to be speculation about the locusts, uh, equating them with Apache helicopters or or uh, or whatever else we may try and and come up with. It's not uh, to scare people with the prospect of these horses of wars and plagues that are going to kill a third of the population. It really is a reminder for the church that we must not compromise with the world systems and with uh, worldly means of winning because those are the very things that are being judged. Uh, it is Christ alone, it is the cross alone in which the church finds its security, in which the church finds refuge from these judgments, in which the church finds victory over the world. We cannot fight a spiritual battle by worldly means. And if you are like me, if you are on social media and Especially during this time, we're recording this particular uh, episode in, in early September 2020. We're two months away from a presidential election. And all I need to do is go on my Facebook and see a whole list of Christians who are tempted, if not full in, on compromise with the world. And using this world, world system to try and bring about some kind of spiritual end. And brothers and sisters, that will never work. The church does not win victory over the world by fighting on the world's terms and with the world's means. The whole point of Revelation, if you remember back... From the beginning, the focal point of Revelation is actually not the return of Jesus Christ. It is the cross of Jesus Christ. And over and over again, the cross is brought back into the picture to remind us as Christians, living in these end times, living in these last days between the first and second coming of Christ, that it is only in the cross that we have any kind of of victory, It is only through the cross that we have victory over the world. And it's a reminder that the cross does not look like victory. The cross looks like defeat. And yet, Revelation is reminding us that it is the very things that we're tempted to put our trust in, the very things that we're tempted to worship, because they, they help us win. They, they, they bring us... To a point of looking like we're winning this this war against the world and yet it is actually in the seeming defeat of the cross that we find our victory and so when we are tempted to align ourselves with these worldly systems with these social systems around us when we're tempted to pick up the sword to lop off the ear thinking that we're protecting jesus by doing so when we're uh, tempted to use slander and gossip and lies and, and, and all other kinds of tactics to uh, portray our side as being in the right, when we're tempted uh, to engage the world with the world's means, we're reminded by Revelation 9 that these are the very things that God is bringing judgment on. And so if we really are the sealed Ones. if we are the ones that, that God has sealed, if we are the ones that are in Christ, then we will fight the way that Christ fought with the cross. That we will go to seeming defeat, knowing that it is through the death of the cross that new life comes. And yes, that might look at times like actually being defeated. Again, the fifth Trumpet is the equivalent of the fifth seal, which is where the martyrs, those who have been killed for their faith, cry out, How long, O Lord. And yet the cross reminds us that the story does not end with death on Good Friday, but with the resurrection on Easter Sunday. And so the church is passive in God's judgment. We are not the ones judging the world. We are not the ones God uses. And two pick up those weapons of the world to try and judge the world we actually bring judgment on ourselves because we will either be in the cross or we will depart and so god allows us to experience that suffering to call us back to repentance so that we might go back to the cross and so brothers and sisters let this be a reminder for me for you um, for all of us especially as we enter a politically charged season. That it is in the cross of Jesus Christ that we find our refuge, that we find our security, that we find our victory. And may we never depart from the cross to pick up the sword of the empire and therefore bring judgment upon ourselves. Join us next time as we uh, move on from chapter 9 into chapter 10.